1: is running out this message is paid for by alliance for fair and equitable policy
2: the views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of saga 960 am or its management
3: welcome to the richard sarah show on news talk saga 960 am
2: and welcome to radio free canada News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Tuesday, Jan 25th, 2022. There are significant indications that the freedom convoy is causing great concern to the ruling class in this country. We have a growing list of conservative MPs, including former leadership hopeful Leslin Lewis, finance critic Pierre Polyev, and other Western MPs suddenly declaring their support for the truckers who are descending on the cesspool that is Ottawa. They should arrive by the end of this week. They're only 22 months late to the dance and likely are only doing so because they realize the winds are changing. The narrative is crumbling and they understand it's politically advantageous to get on the right side. Probably too late, but they'll still try because they're politicians. There are uh, new estimates. Some are saying 60,000 trucks now registered for the convoy. And that, I do not believe that includes the US truckers who have also pledged to join. God bless our American cousins. There are also reports being circulated by the mainstream media that GoFundMe is gonna suspend the Freedom Convoy campaign Uh, which is so far raised, I think it's nearly $5 million now. But it's not true, that's a lie. That is a lie. You see how complicit the collaborators are in the legacy media? Not to be trusted, not to be trusted. And the winds in fact are changing. The rats are fleeing the sinking ship. Have you noticed lately that Twitter is not so quick to censor or take down posts that challenge the official narrative. Here's a nurse from Nevada. Her name is Nicole Sirotek. She's testifying before a New York State Senate committee hearing on the way the hospitals in New York City handled the pandemic.
0: My name is Nicole Sirotek. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for over a decade. My specialty is critical care trauma and flight. Um, Since the start of the COVID pandemic, I've actually been rebranded, I guess you can say, as a leading expert in early intervention strategies, executed on a large mass scale using the FLCCC protocol, as well as, ventilator, uh, COVID patient ventilator protective strategies to optimize uh, COVID patients on the ventilators. My story actually begins back in May of 2020. I was one of the original nurses that went to NYC to help with the COVID pandemic because, as we remember, they needed nurses and, most importantly, they needed ventilators. Well, I was the whole package, a flight nurse that can manage ventilators. And when I arrived there, um, the gross negligence and the medical you know, malfeasance that happened in there and the complete medical mismanagement of these patients is what had led us, has led us to the situation that we're in right now. The pandemic and the hysteria that was created from poor public health measures and poor execution of appropriate early intervention strategies and the handicapping of medical professionals doing their job has led to where we are right now and into the crisis situation that we are in I will use several key case studies that will represent larger uh, descriptive statistical information for what I'm going to speak of but when I was in New York and what continues to happen today is that many of them are not dying from COVID Now many people don't know about me is that I'm actually a master's prepared biochemist and I have worked extensively with the HIV uh, virus tracking uh, genetic mutations, so I feel very comfortable going toe-to-toe with some of these doctors here, although I am not a doctor, I'm just a nurse. But what we saw in these front lines, we knew what was happening. And when we asked for the ibuprofen, they said, no, it was contraindicated. When we asked, like, why aren't we giving them steroids? Oh, well, it's not. We we're just following orders. Following orders has led to the sheer number of deaths that has occurred in these hospitals. I didn't see a single patient die of COVID. I've seen a substantial number of patients die of negligence and medical malfeasance.
2: Medical malfeasance just following orders. You're going to be hearing a lot more of that. It's happening here too, I can assure you. And eventually, eventually it will all come out. Here's Dr. Mary Bowden from Houston who sued Methodist Hospital in Houston to release financial records to find out who is being paid off. Here she is describing more of this medical malfeasance going on in hospitals in Houston.
4: Uh, now, it's, people are terrified to go to the hospital, so I've, I've become the emergency room. <laughs> I'm giving high-dose IV steroids, I'm giving you know, 25 grams of IV vitamin C, but I am keeping people out of the hospital, and I've kept over 2,000 people out of the hospital, and if you look at current statistics, 20 of those people should be dead, and they're not. <laughs> so. Um, I I see a lot of high-risk patients I you know I don't know if you saw my press conference but I had a you know a woman in her late 60s diabetic not taking her medications came to me with an oxygen saturation of 82% and she came to my clinic three days in a row she got IV steroids I gave her 80 milligrams of solumedrol based on the FLCC protocol thank you uh, I gave her two grams of vitamin C. I gave her a slew of medications. I, I threw the kitchen sink at her because she refused to go to the hospital. And in prior times, I would say, you, you need to go to the hospital, but she refused. Um, but now she's alive and doing wonderfully. And, you know, there's, it's just sickening how many patients did not receive that kind of care. And the turning point for me when I really got angry was uh, a patient that her wife reached out to me. He's trapped in the ICU, father of six, sheriff's deputy refused <sighs> refuse to give anything, but, you know, these, these hospitals give them low-dose steroids. I give them six milligrams of dexamethasone, you know, three times a day. A lot of these hospitals won't even give breathing treatments. It's ridiculous. They won't give them the vitamins. I mean, and so basically she called me in desperation, and I testified. She sued the hospital to try to get her husband the medications he needed. I testified we won. The hospital refused to grant me privileges, even though I have a spotless record, and I was furious. Because <laughs> that's when it all changed for me, and I became, you know, I became thrust into the public because of Methodist Hospital. But um, it's just, you know, we—I've seen a lot, and I'm angry, and I'm exhausted. I mean. I have one hospital I can send patients to that I feel safe to. I have one one doctor, Dr. Joe Varone, who I trust that I'll send my patients to, out of an enormous city, and I'm exhausted. I can't find any doctors to help me. Um, it's, it's a huge problem.
2: That's Dr. Mary Bowden. More and more nurses, doctors coming forward, talking about medical malfeasance, we have families that are getting court orders to get their dying loved ones who are on ventilators on their deathbed. One last shot. Let's try the Avermectin. No, won't do it. Won't do it. Nothing to lose, but they will not do it. They steadfastly refuse. What is going on? Here's a sickening example of what's happening. Medical ethics gone out the window. We have a 31 year old father who has been removed from the heart transplant list at a Boston hospital because he's refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine. DJ Ferguson. He was first on the list to receive the transplant at Brigham and Women's Hospital, but he is no longer eligible because of his vaccination status. And his father, David, said his son is fighting for his life in the hospital in desperate need of the transplant. And he doesn't believe in the COVID vaccine. It's against his basic principles. He doesn't believe in it. Now it's a policy the hospital is enforcing. And so because he won't get the shot, they took him off the uh, the list. His son has gone to the edge of death, he says, to stick to his guns and he's been pushed to the limit. DJ Ferguson has two children and is expecting a third with his partner, Heather. And the family are thinking about relocating him to uh, another hospital that doesn't have the vaccination policy, but they fear he is already too weak to be moved. I wonder... I wonder if that hospital would refuse an organ from an unvaccinated person. I wonder. Sick, evil, attempted homicide. This is happening here in Canada. We've talked about it on the show. Sick, evil, unconscionable. There must be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning. This is why the truckers are descending on the cesspool of Ottawa, not just to end the vaccine mandates for truckers, but to end all vaccine mandates, all mask mandates. Denmark now is expected to announce an end to all mandates shortly. It's ending, people. It's over, except here in globalist Canada, the land of time for God, which is thrown in its lot with authoritarian countries like Austria and Australia, horrible places. God bless the truckers. My prayers go with them. They are on an epic mission. Get on board, get behind the truckers. They may be our last best hope. And if you're not on board, if you're not on side with the truckers, I got news for you. You're on the wrong side of history. And when this finally ends, it will be very, very difficult to forgive. It will be impossible, impossible to forget. Uh, We're going to talk about that courageous teacher in Waterloo who has been bullied, slandered, and abused for simply questioning the age appropriateness of certain trans books present in elementary school libraries in Waterloo region. Chris Elston, another courageous man, Billboard Chris, uh, will be here with his thoughts on uh, Carolyn Berjosky. She's the, uh, the teacher in question. Tom Quiggin will be here with an update on the Convoy for Freedom, particularly how the supply chain is being held hostage by communist China, go figure. The supply chain that keeps the trucking industry moving is breaking down fast. All right, parents, if you've had enough of the abuse of your children by the neurotic hypochondriacs running the public school boards and the teachers, uh, teachers' unions, and the Ministry of Education, if you've had enough, there are alternatives, you know. Homeschool your children, it's never been easier. And you've come at the right time because Ruth Gasgovski, our homeschooling advisor, will be here this hour. You can do it. You're not alone. There's a homeschooling revolution underway. Be part of it. Did you get a pay raise during COVID? No. More likely a frozen boot to the head. Well, it turns out about a half million government employees got raises. Jay Goldberg, Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, we'll be here with the details. And coming up next, almost from the beginning, when this show launched back in March of last year, I was talking about how we had a perfectly good pandemic plan in place before COVID. It all went out the window. David Redmond is a retired Canadian military lieutenant colonel and former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. He'll be here next to compare how the so-called plan we have in place now compares to the previous pandemic plan. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Tuesday, Jan 25th, 2022. Keep rolling, truckers, keep rolling.
3: We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
2: Every Canadian province, every Canadian province and all of the territories had a perfectly good pandemic plan in place prior to COVID, prior to 2020. Ontario had one going back to 2013. British Columbia, 2014. Alberta, 2014. I'm not sure when Manitoba's was enacted. Newfoundland, going back to 2007. New Brunswick, 2006. Nova Scotia, 2013. Nunavut, well, 2020. How do they compare these pandemic plans we had in place prior to COVID? How do they compare to our actual pandemic response today. David Redman is a retired Canadian military Lieutenant Colonel, the former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and a senior fellow at Frontier Center for Public Policy. David, welcome, how are you?
5: I'm outstanding, how about yourself?
2: Uh, we're, we're all hanging in as best we can. Um, so when you were the, uh, the former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, as the former head, what was your responsibility?
5: Uh, as the head of an emergency management agency, you're responsible for looking at all hazards that might affect a province and for developing a, uh, an intelligence system to monitor any and all hazards and then to develop plans uh, that will address each of the hazards that are applicable to your province or territory.
2: All right. So uh, in Alberta, <laughs> your pandemic plan Uh, came into effect I think in 2014, or it was enacted in 2014, ours in 2013. Uh, What led to all of these provinces suddenly enacting these pandemics? Was it in reaction to SARS from 2003? Uh, No.
5: What happens in in every jurisdiction in Canada is, as I say, you monitor the hazards. So I was the head of uh, EMA back in 2004, 2005. It's a regular and ongoing process. So, for instance, you see that the Alberta plan is dated to 2014, but back in um, 2005, we did the update of the plan. So, these emergency plans aren't just written and put on a shelf. They're updated every 10 years, uh, normally by law, It depends on each province what's required, but in Alberta, they were revitalized at least every 10 years. So, What happened back in 2005, we had just been through a series of events in the province, but uh, there was a new document released by WHO in 2005, which was the non-pharmaceutical interventions guidelines. And that caused Alberta to want to review its existing pandemic influenza plan. So we wrote an updated version in 2005, which after I retired was then updated again in 2014. So it's a regular ongoing process. And the purpose of those plans is so that when you're actually hit, for instance, in this case by a pandemic, you have a pre-existing plan that you should draw out, look at the exact virus that's hit you because these were generic for all types of viruses, look at the specifics of the virus that you're encountering and it allows you to then very quickly tailor the plan, release it to the public in a full written format, and then to actually implement that plan step by step. and. With all that pre-work done, it allows you to do correct decision-making right from the start, but with a full governance task force.
2: Were these plans designed only to address things like public health and, and, let's say, health sector communications? You mentioned surveillance, I think, outpatient care, immunization, or did they look at the society as a whole, the functioning of society as a whole?
6: Let me
5: use the Alberta plan as an example, and you can make your own determination. There was four goals, overarching goals, the must do's in the Alberta plan dated 2014. The first was to control the spread of the disease and reduce the illness by providing access to appropriate prevention measures, care and treatment. That's goal number one. Goal number two, mitigate societal disruption in Alberta through ensuring the continuity of all critical services. Number three, minimizing the adverse economic impacts of the virus. And number four, supporting an effective and efficient use of all resources. I put it to you that we've done exactly the opposite and have not met one of those four goals because we obviously threw the plans away.
2: That's correct. <laughs> I'm just writing these down. I'm sorry. Uh, I was writing. Yes. Uh, prevention. We did nothing. Uh, mitigate societal disruption. We did the exact opposite. Minimize economic impact. We did the exact opposite. That's a big fail. Uh, David, hold on. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. David Redmond, retired Canadian military lieutenant colonel, former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. Back with more of the Richard Sarah chill in three minutes. Don't go away.
3: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga, 960 a.m. It's the Richard Sarah Show.
2: David Redmond stays with us, retired Canadian military lieutenant colonel, former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, Senior Fellow of Frontier Center for Public Policy. So the pandemic plan, as far as Alberta goes, I mean, some of the key elements here: prevention of a pandemic, mitigate social disruption, minimize economic impact. Let's just look at these first three. I mean, what happened between 2014 in your estimation and 2020, did they did they throw that one out the window and start from scratch? Was it the fog of war? Did they, lo- they lost the thread? What happened, David?
5: I believe that uh, in February and March of 2020, we knew exactly who was most at risk from COVID. It was our seniors over the age of 60 with severe and multiple comorbidities. In fact, we saw worldwide that 95% of all deaths up to the middle of March 2020 were in seniors with severe comorbidities. So instead of protecting our seniors, which should have been our number one aim and not using non-pharmaceutical interventions as had been clearly stated in our plans, we did exactly the opposite. And that was because our premiers took one look at what was happening in China and Italy and they panicked. They forgot they had pre-written plans or chose to ignore them and placed the medical officers of health in charge. You should never do that. The medical officer of health had one task and one task only, which was to try and run a proper healthcare system. And our aim in March of 2020, instead of being to minimize the impact of COVID 19 on the province, became to minimize the impact of COVID 19 on the healthcare system. A completely wrong aim.
2: Phone plan, streams, and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. You must have, as the former head of the uh, emergency management agency in Alberta, you must have been going. you must have been having fits when you saw the way Premier Kenny and other premiers were behaving through this pandemic. I mean, did you did you have anyone's ear at that time? Did you try and grab someone by the scruff of the, the, their neck and say, what are you doing?
5: I was completely dumbfounded by what they did. I gave them two weeks in March to dig their way out of the mistake they'd made by using non-pharmaceutical interventions for a um, type of virus that they had no effect on other than extremely negative. And then I started writing. I wrote all 13 premiers. I wrote them 12 letters over 12 months, begging them to give me a two hour call to step back from what they were doing or to at least let another voice into their office to explain why the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions are A, not effective, but B, extremely deadly. And we've seen the results of that tragically but we knew that in september of 2019 who had just updated every five years the document on non-pharmaceutical interventions that we had first used back in 2005. it was very clear that for this type of virus you should not use what we now call lockdowns which is in fact a broad sweep of non-pharmaceutical interventions so i begged them to try to stop and listen to somebody with a completely different point of view. When they ignored me for 12 straight months and that's 13 out of 13 premiers, I wrote a position paper which you can find on Frontier Center for Public Policy which I published on the 1st of July. Canada's deadly response to COVID-19 in which I state that it is criminal negligence what we have done by our premiers MOH
2: and the prime minister. That was my next question. I was going to ask about criminal negligence. You know, we can excuse maybe, perhaps, some panic for the first couple weeks, but not after 22 months. So panic no longer explains it. Uh, Absolutely
5: I've, correct.
2: I've been talking about a reckoning that must happen after all, when we finally crawl out from under this mess. There must be a reckoning. I don't know what you want to call it, a truth and reconciliation panel or criminal proceedings. I don't know. But, you know, some some people are talking about Nuremberg two trials. What what is the the remedy after? You know, I remember when after SARS and the doctor said, we learned so much from this and the politicians, we learned so much. And when we first heard about. SARS-CoV-2, they said, that's all right, we got this. We learned so much from SARS. They learned nothing, obviously. But what is your remedy after we finally get out from under this? What should be the reckoning?
5: Well, it's going to take a while because the first thing we need to do is walk back the fear. As an officer in the Army and then as the head of EMA, I knew you never, ever use fear as a motivator in any type of emergency and yet our politicians and moh have used fear as the only tool in their toolbox they have driven into the minds of all canadians that number one lockdowns work and they do exactly the opposite they kill at least 10 times as many in most studies it's a hundred times as many as any covid deaths could ever have occurred but number two They also have inbred into Canadians that the only way out of this pandemic is with vaccines. Both those statements, lockdowns work and vaccines are the only way out, are two categoric mistruths. We need to walk back the mass formation which has happened to our Canadian public, which is now more terrified of a disease which for people under 60 is less risk than seasonal influenza. I'll say that again, for people under 60 without a severe comorbidities, this virus is less deadly than seasonal influenza and Canadian statistics prove it, world statistics prove it, study after study after study. And yet, if you ask Canadians, they believe that COVID will kill them in a heartbeat if they don't lock down and if they don't wait for a vaccine to save them.
2: David, if there is ever, well, there will be, it's not a question of if, it's when. The next time it rolls around, if you're not too beaten down and, and frustrated, I, I pray that you or someone like-minded will be in charge of the, uh, the pandemic response the next time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. David Redman. All right, when we come back, we're not in this together. Let's just disabuse ourselves of that notion right from the get-go. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and he'll detail how, as while many of you were losing hours or losing jobs or being shown to the curb, kicked to the curb, 500,000 federal employees, government employees, got nice raises. Back with that story in three minutes.
3: You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM.
2: How many times have we heard this? Oh, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. What a pile of manure. What a pile of manure. While many of you were having your hours cut back, maybe you were kicked to the curb, maybe you lost your business, maybe it devastated your family. A half a million government workers were busy making hay. Some of them were sent home during COVID with full pay, and the government kept hiring and hiring and hiring. It was boom times if you worked for the federal or the provincial governments. Here with the sorry details is Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Jay, welcome once again. How are you, buddy?
6: Doing well, great to be with you.
2: Likewise. This is, uh, this is beyond um, infuriating, actually so many so many Canadians. well tell us what are the numbers in terms of um uh sort of the peak of unemployment during covid uh the number of of Canadians who, who lost work or maybe had their hours cut back
6: yeah so unemployment peaked at around 13 percent in canada in the middle of covid and of course we had uh Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Canadians who lost their jobs. And at the same time, what we saw was bureaucrats at all levels of government getting pay raises. uh, And actually, the number of bureaucrats increased over the period of the pandemic, both here provincially in Ontario and at the federal level. And it's important to note that this half a million figure that we're giving out, these are just bureaucrats who got raises. We're not talking about teachers or nurses. We're talking about pencil pushers who are in, at Queen's Park or in downtown Ottawa who are making decisions on uh, how to run our lives and how to lock us down and keep us home. And so this is the half a million people who receive pay raises while so many hardworking people, as you said, uh, lost their job, lost hours, were sent home or owned small businesses that ultimately collapsed.
2: Right. And so- Needless to say that, you know, there are civil servants, there are government employees who work hard, who go the extra mile, who are, uh, you know, who do good work. And and uh, but um, there were also how many how many tens of thousands of government employees were sent home with full pay?
6: Yeah, there were a lot of government employees that were sent home with full pay. We know that at both levels of government because not one single job was lost at either level. And what we actually saw, for example, here in the province of Ontario, we lost 110,000 jobs in the tourism and accommodation sectors during the pandemic. But we gained 9,000 bureaucratic jobs during the pandemic. So it really just illustrates this whole tale of two pandemics that we've experienced. Where, if you're in government, you, in many cases, got sent home. You kept your jobs. You were given a lot of money, taxpayer money, to set up home offices. The amount of money that was spent on getting desks and ergonomic chairs for everybody, you know, was huge expenses, as we found in Freedom of Information requests. Uh, And on the other side, yeah, you have the people who've lost their jobs, who've lost their businesses, and of course, they're hardworking. Uh, individuals who work for the government, but we're talking about all sharing in the burden of the downturn together. And it's not fair to have all of these people in the private sector lose their jobs or lose pay uh, and then have other people gaining pay uh, while we're experiencing record deficits and record high unemployment.
2: I mean, talk about tone deaf, talk about callousness, uh, what about federal MPs, senators, and the prime minister? What, uh, what kind of bump in uh, pay did they
6: see? Well, this is just, you know, this is out of touch on steroids. What we have is two pay raises, and it'll be a third when April comes around. During the pandemic for our members of the parliament, they now make almost two hundred thousand dollars which of course is way far and above what the average household in Canada makes, let alone what the average individual in Canada makes. And that's $7,000 of pay hikes over those two years. The prime minister is getting an extra $14,000 compared to where he was before the pandemic. Uh, And we've seen leaders in countries in other parts of the world, like in New Zealand, voluntarily take a pay cut to share in the burden of the times with uh, you know, they're fellow citizens. But here in Canada, we've seen the total opposite. We've got to give credit to uh, those at Queen's Park, uh, the Ford government. They've frozen wages for members of provincial parliament there. But out in Ottawa, they're, you know, getting pay on steroids here with record, uh, record levels of pay for the prime minister, for, for the prime minister's cabinet, for all members of parliament. And we should also note that a lot of this included virtual sittings of the House of Commons because many of them didn't even go to Ottawa because of their pandemic rules.
2: Ah, oh, I, I have no words at this point, Jay. I'm sure, I'm sure you're running out of words as well. Uh, appreciate your, um, your sticking to this and, and um, letting us know about how we're not in this together. We simply are not. We're in it, but we're not in it together. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, thanks so much again. Thank you. All right, when we come back, the homeschooling advisor, we'll talk about the value of classical books and a classical vocabulary. Stay with us.
3: Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM.
2: All right, I keep telling you there is a homeschooling revolution underway, and it is time for you all to get on board. If you have the means, you won't regret it—the greatest reward of your life. And uh, every Tuesday at this time, we uh, we talk about homeschooling, and our homeschooling advisor, Ruth Gaskowski, joins us once again. Ruth, how are you?
8: Excellent, Richard. Thanks for having me.
2: So I'm up on the uh, the humanitasfamily.net. This is the website that you founded. And uh, we're talking about classic vocabulary uh, today. And you have a wonderful quote here from E.B. White. I'm just going to crib it from the website. E.B. White wrote, anyone who writes down to children is simply wasting his time. You have to write up, not down. Children are demanding. They're the most attentive, curious, eager, observant, sensitive, quick, and generally congenial readers on earth. Children are game for anything. I throw them hard words and they backhand them across the net. That's a wonderful, wonderful quote. So, what do we mean by a classic vocabulary?
8: All right. Well, classic vocabulary is the kind of uh, vocabulary word you might encounter in any kind of American or English classic literature. And up until not too long ago, it was quite common for people to be very familiar with this vocabulary. And um, it's been kind of downgraded over time so that it now seems to us an alien language. And that's why we're seeing a lot of this culling uh, of classic books because they're just deemed too complicated or too inaccessible because we've kind of filtered out the words that make us stumble a bit and make us think a bit harder.
2: And so at what age should we start introducing not only the classics, but classic vocabulary to children? What age or, or which, what grade?
8: Well, at what grade do you think you should introduce your child to the word Tyrannosaurus Rex? Or how about supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Those are pretty complicated words. How long would you wait? Well, we probably might introduce them in kindergarten, possibly at the age of three or four. So why would we wait with words such as countenance or uh, grotesque or uh, prodigious? Other words that we encounter in classic books, these are no more complicated than other things. So these are the kinds of hard words that E.B. White talks about and casually throws at them. And children enjoy this kind of challenge and kind of raise it because they're curious and um, they enjoy kind of learning new things. When I first started teaching classic vocabulary to kids in grade four, what do you think they asked me for? What's the longest, most complicated word possible that you can teach me? And they all wanted to learn it. And it's, it's the longest word in the English language and they all mastered it. Did you that anti- what it is? Anti- <laughs> it, it's not a classic.
2: Anti-disestablishmentarianism?
8: No, it's silico silicovolcano coniosis. It's a kind of uh, reaction you get to volcanic dust, <laughs> and they could all spell it. So really? children do want to rise. Yeah, because they want to rise to the challenge. They love being challenged. And classic words uh, are just that. They are interesting things that give us detailed information about our language and make us more specific about what we mean to say. Um, but generally in the school system, we've limited students' horizons to their grade level, uh, so kind of vocabulary lists that are prescribed, and it's been called the best, in the States, they call it the best national vocabulary prevention program because they're kept just to their level and not encouraged to reach kind of higher. Uh,
2: well, because, you know, kids, we, we don't need to know fancy words if we're going to stack uh, boxes containing, you know, cheap imports in a warehouse, Uh there uh, anyway, what, what are there studies what I mean, what happens to a child's brain when you introduce them uh, introduce new words into their vocabulary?
8: Right Well, generally, students who don't know many words can't write many words, but students who get familiar with more classic vocabulary and advanced words actually have greater ease with writing and greater fluency in all subjects in general. So the more words a student knows, um, they can process information more quickly. So we had talked about uh, that when we were talking about multiplication. What's the use of learning multiplication facts by heart? Well, it has the same effect. The more words and the more advanced words you know, the faster your processing speed. And it lightens the load on working memory. It also helps children to think abstractly. And importantly, it helps them to kind of express their emotions better and to understand others better. And interestingly, good vocabulary is the single best predictor of career success.
2: Ah, and comes ahead
8: of achievement, yeah.
2: yeah not a, not uh, not surprising. Uh, there's an interesting chart here, um, and I know it's always difficult to discuss or describe charts on the radio. Um, but it has to do with a classic word frequency in a bunch of different uh, classic books, from you know David Copperfield to uh, Vanity Fair, um, uh, Lord of the Flies, or Lord—sorry, uh, Lord of the uh, the Rings—I think is in here. Uh, just tell me about you know what this chart is trying to demonstrate.
8: Right. Well, this chart was made by an educator who actually develops curricula for gifted children, and he just wondered. What is uh, what are the best English words? And so he kind of undertook this study uh, where in each book he read, in each of the classics, he marched, marked each advanced words, which ended up being 35,000 examples from 130 different works. And what he realized is that generally there are 100 words that occur in almost all classic novels. And once you have mastered just those 100 words, it opens up the doors to uh, a whole row of um, classic treasures. And the interesting thing that you pointed out here is that uh, on the one end, we have David Copperfield, which actually has 1,356 classic words in it. This generally has been removed from classrooms because it's too inaccessible. So when we talk about classics in the classroom, we talk maybe about catcher in the rye. Now in comparison, that one just has 14 classic words it's maybe classic because many people have read it, but not because it contains rich and abundant vocabulary. Um, so the ones that uh, the classics that have been left in the classroom are really just a, a vestige, uh, a little vapor of uh, language that is left over, uh, whereas it's really richly represented in the older classics that have much more advanced classic vocabulary.
2: Uh, you know, if I didn't know better, Ruth, I'd say they were trying to dumb our children down. But there there I go being conspiratorial again.
8: Well, you know, uh, I was speaking with my friend who had her daughter in a grade nine uh, public school class. And she had h- homeschooled all throughout and was looking forward to what literature was going to be like. And the book that they had to read that was assigned was written in rap. And so That's I written. think that shows you kind of what they mean by accessible language.
2: Written in rap. Rap, like yes. as in rap music,
8: as in rap music, yeah.
2: Oh dear lord, God save us all! Uh, can you give us the longest word in the English dictionary again?
8: The longest word, and I'm not sure it's in the dictionary, oh. but it's numinal ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis. <laughs> and any 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 child loves wrapping their lips around this one. And I think um, you'd be surprised at how willing children are to embrace challenging words. I had never studied these with my youngest one who's in grade four, but just kind of for fun, I threw a few at him and he was like, "Okay, give give me more. What does that one mean? What does that one mean? And surprisingly, he could interpret many of them because he had listened to a lot of the stories and understood them in context. So uh, don't underestimate what your children are capable of and also don't underestimate how little they might encounter of this in school. So I would really encourage parents to take it upon themselves to introduce their children to classics in their free time a bit and don't rely on schools solely to provide the reading texts.
1: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that overpolicing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy
2: humanitasfamily.net humanitasfamily.net H-U-M-A-N like in human I-T-A-S humanitasfamily.net and uh, we'll talk again next week Ruth thank you great
8: job okay talk to you then
2: bye 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 all right plenty of show still to come Hour two awaits we'll speak with Tom Quiggan host of the Quiggan Report about the convoy uh, more importantly about the uh, the supply chain disruption to the trucking industry and uh, we'll speak with Chris Elston, a.k.a. Billboard Chris, of course, who's been traveling uh, Canada and uh, well, the U.S. as well to expose gender ideology and child abuse. We'll talk about the uh, courageous teacher in Waterloo region who uh, has been uh, punished, uh, bullied, slandered because she, um, she was questioning the age appropriateness of some trans activist literature in the elementary school libraries. All that awaits in mere moments. Stay with us. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Hey Richard! Hello, yes. Can I help you? Richard!
3: The Richard Sarrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960AM.
2: Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up a little bit later this hour, our good uh, friend Chris Elson, a.k.a. Billboard Chris. He's been traveling Canada and the United States exposing gender ideology and child abuse. And uh, we'll ask him uh, for his thoughts on this courageous teacher from Waterloo region who uh, was censored and basically kicked out of a virtual uh, school board meeting for having the temerity to questioning to question the, the age appropriateness of uh, certain, let's call them trans activist uh, books in elementary school libraries. This uh, next segment or two, we're going to talk about the uh, Freedom Convoy. This isn't just about ending a vaccine mandate for truckers or for mask mandates or vaccine mandates and passports for the rest of us. There's something else underlying this this issue. It has to do with the supply chain. And not just the supply chain as it affects store shelves, the supply chain that affects the the trucking industry itself. Here to uh, help us understand is Tom Quiggin, host of the Quiggin Report podcast. Welcome back, Tom. Good to have you. How are you?
9: Good afternoon, Richard. Glad to be back with you here at uh, Saga Nine Hundred and Sixty Radio.
2: Likewise. Uh, before we get into the, the the supply chain issue as it affects the trucking industry, just to get some general impressions from you, because we have now, by some estimates, perhaps sixty thousand trucks registered. We have truck truckers coming up from the United States. We've got five million dollars raised in a GoFundMe campaign. They're descending on this cesspool known as Ottawa. What kind of an impact, realistically, do you think this will have?
9: Well, it's been a fascinating uh, thing to be involved in, uh, Richard. It started, I mean, I wasn't a part of starting it, but it was started as a GoFundMe campaign to raise a couple of tens of thousands of dollars to run one convoy to Ottawa to demand an end to the mandates. End the mandates, period. That was the aim of the convoy. It has become a grassroots phenomenon, which is spreading not only across Canada, but into the United States as well, and it's getting worldwide attention. Um, it looks It's already got a record for the world's largest convoy. Uh, it is the eighth largest ever GoFundMe campaign that's been run anywhere in the world. And it, it appears to be Uh, taking Canada by storm and I think what you're seeing Rex Murphy did that thing in the National Post and I think he kind of hit it right that people are concerned about trucks they're concerned about vaccine mandates they're concerned about you know forcing children into getting a you know a, a vaccine that maybe the parents don't quite trust but it's also become a conduit for people who are tired of government overreach Uh, government overspending you were just talking with the uh, taxpayers association about the amount of money that's being you know pumped into the civil service and folks are concerned about the trillion dollar plus debt we have in canada right now so i think this is the first time in six years of trudeau's government that an organized or quasi-organized movement has come together to unite Canadians on a common cause rather than trying to divide them along a number of identity politics lines. It's a fascinating ride to watch. Uh, it, al-
2: it almost feels like, a dare I say, a colored revolution.
9: <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy I don't want to be careful before I went down that road. But I think you're correct in the sense that it is all kinds of different people. I see Hutterites are out on the side of the road cheering on the convoy. These are not normally political people who are involved in technical issues. Uh, soccer mums are out there. Uh, people who are, are just concerned about the price of tomatoes are out there. So, yeah, it has a broad appeal. And I think the other thing that's strange about it, like I just mentioned, It is something that Canadians can look at, they can work at it and think about it in a uniting kind of way of something that brings us all together across provinces, be it BC, Quebec, PEI, whatever, Uh, and it brings people across uh, class lines, colour lines, employment lines, whatever, uh, so it's something that's actually trying to unite Canadians, which is a unique experience in Canada. We haven't had that for the last six years. Everything in Canada for the last six years has been about how do we divide Canadians along racial lines, uh, along you know, gender lines, diversity lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an interesting phenomenon, and it's, uh, it's going to be huge, as uh, some folks might say.
2: Will it have an impact? Do you sense that uh, Trudeau and his uh, band of creepy grifters are, are getting a little worried?
9: Um, certainly the vitriol coming out of some of the opponents, uh, some of the statements made by Gerard Butts, who most people believe is the prime minister's brain, uh, former head of the prime minister's office, lifelong friend of Justin Trudeau. And clearly he is the Eminence Grise behind, uh, Trudeau. He made a vitriolic statement against the organizer of the GoFundMe campaign saying, well, she's a grifter, <coughs> sorry, you know, an Alberta separatist, and who knows where the money's going. And that, you know, that's the kind of arrogance that comes out of the Trudeau liberals. They've been so used to having their way for so long. uh, I think they're going to find something interesting. And to make kind of an observation here, uh, Trudeau and his crowd, his his group, the PMO, sort of live in a la-la world of Uh, social media, virtue signaling. They throw money out the door at any given problem. They are not terribly well connected to reality. The government is great at announcing spending programs. It's not so great on getting stuff done, not getting stuff built. The entire trucking industry is based on kinetics, horsepower, torque, Uh, range, weight, speed, distance, time. Everything in the trucking world is real. Now, I mean, your average Class 8 truck has three computers in it, and they're absolutely amazing technological marvels. But the reality is what you're seeing is Trudeau and his kind of la-la social media world where they exist in their virtue signaling kingdom is running head-on into another world which is driven purely by kinetics. And it's going to be an interesting collision.
2: I will say, it. and so uh, eloquently put, Tom. Tom Quiggin is with us, host of the Quiggin Report podcast. All right. So there is something else uh, underlying this that, that is not being talked about that you brought to my attention. And that is, I mean, we know about the supply chain issues in terms of empty grocery store shelves, but there is another supply chain issue here um, that has to do with the trucking industry itself. Talk to me about that.
9: Yeah, there's some fascinating stuff that's been going on for more than five years. So this isn't something that came out of the pandemic. And just just to sort of go back to your viewers and explain this a bit, the trucking industry is the supply chain at the end of the day. About 100% of the food in your grocery store got there because of a truck. Uh, About 60% of the value of trade between Canada and America... Do you have headphones? Do you have a couch in your living room? That's because there's a truck out there somewhere that made that happen. Now, the interesting thing is the trucking industry has its own supply chain. It needs spare parts. It needs tires. It needs oil. It needs, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. And that supply chain is failing and it has been failing for several years. And it became really noticeable about five years ago when the the indicators and warnings started. So here's what it is. We have allowed our supply chain, that is to say the trucking industry, to become dependent on China. China now effectively holds us hostage uh, because if you need spare parts for a truck, and here I'm meaning uh, the black boxes, the power distribution boxes, the data links, and all that stuff that make the truck actually run, almost all of that stuff now is coming from China, and it's increasingly hard to get at an incredibly expensive rate. Uh, Shipping rates in Canada and the U.S. have doubled and quadrupled over the last couple of years. So folks are wondering, you know, why is stuff more expensive? Well, it's more expensive because keeping a truck moving is getting to be an incredibly expensive exercise because so much of the parts originate from China. Now, people say, well, you know, what if they originate in China? Well, here's the problem and we'll go through a few of them. Parts availability. The first thing is right now, parts are hard to get in the trucking industry even basic steel parts like tie rod ends, lower control arms, fabrication metals, that sort of stuff. Tires are increasingly on waiting lists, and there's trucks out there driving around with mismatched tires because they can't get them. Now, I referred earlier to the electrical black boxes that have the little chips in them in the truck that do the data linking and the power distribution for the three main computer systems that are on a Class 8 truck now. Increasingly unavailable. Waiting time, days, weeks, and sometimes months. Now, Here's another thing we've allowed to happen in the industry, and this one's stunning. Your basic Class A truck, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if the headlamp burnt out, the driver would go, oh, he'd go to the dealer or Canadian Tire, spend 20 bucks on a headlamp, get his uh, Phillips screwdriver out there with a number two or number three bit, change the headlamp half an hour later, good to go. Now, if your headlamp fails, you go to the dealer, (coughs) sorry. You spend $1,000 on the headlamp assembly that comes with the LED manual and appropriate wiring harnesses.
1: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? is running out this message is paid for by lines for fair and equitable policy
9: and you have the dealer replace it so something that cost 20 bucks a few years ago and was just a minor pain is now a major operation that costs a thousand bucks now consider this as well there's a whole bunch of sensors on trucks now a lot of them related to pollution so a soot sensor properly known as an oxides of nitrogen sensor Uh, sits in the exhaust pipe for instance and it measures particulate and stuff like that or it measures oxides of nitrogen more correctly um 850 bucks a pop now here's the thing if that sensor fails it doesn't just fail and you have to get it fixed next week it actually derates the engine by talking to the computer shuts the engine down to about five percent power and there you are on the side of the road going five kilometers an hour and you gotta you know you gotta call a tow truck that's the kind of stuff that's going on. Quiggan is
2: with us. As, pardon the interruption, Tom. Just uh, reset here. Tom Quiggan, host of the Quiggin Report podcast. We're going to take a time out uh, and come back and discuss further. But w- what it, it sounds like is because of you've got the parts availability question, then you've got the parts cost issue. So the the end result could be you could have otherwise perfectly serviceable vehicles that are just sitting on the road, standing still. So we're getting a sense now of how dire this supply chain issue is to the trucking industry itself. We'll, uh, we'll pick it up on the other side. Tom Quiggin stays with us. Back with more in three minutes. Don't go away.
3: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
2: Tom Quiggin stays with us for a few moments yet, host of The Quiggin Report podcast and uh, the author of, um, it's a new trilogy of books, uh, The Great Reset. The first one is called The New Order of Fear. How do we get a copy of that, Tom?
9: Uh, It's available on most of the Amazon distribution points. Uh, And like you said, it's uh, it looks at the Great Reset, which is occurring at the moment of which, you know, Justin Trudeau, uh, Joseph Biden, these guys are a big part of and sort of outlines in a fictional intelligence thriller kind of way of what could go wrong with all of this. So it's uh, a bit of good fun and it's a it's a good read.
2: And how do we listen to the Quiggin Report
9: podcast? Uh, You can find it just about anywhere on the internet. Uh, Just go into Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever, type in Quiggin Report. It'll come up on iTunes. It'll come up on Stitcher. It'll come up on SoundClouds. Uh, Some of our stuff's still on YouTube, The stuff that hasn't been banned. Uh, So yeah, a simple search with a good search engine under Quiggin Report will turn up most of it.
2: Fantastic. So we're talking about the supply chain issues affecting the trucking industry itself. We were talking about parts availability uh, coming from China, uh, the parts cost just escalating, leaving otherwise serviceable vehicles basically out of service on the side of the road. The other thing uh, that, that you wanted to address was what you call the cheapification of these parts.
9: Yeah, this is another big problem, not just in the trucking industry, but it's hitting the airline industry and the the car vehicle industry as well. But you start out with OEM, the original parts that come on the truck as, as built by the manufacturer. And even some of those now are getting really cheaply made. But what happens is when you go looking for a spare part, a wiring harness, a black box, something like that, you'll discover that the replacement part, although it's supposedly built to OEM requirements is in fact made out of cheaper plastic. It's made out of lighter metal. It's made out of thinner wire. It's made out of lighter duty connectors. And it's gotten so bad now that a number of trucks, even though they're brand new, they can be like a month or two months old and they have to be pulled in for heavy repair with wiring harnesses replaced, black boxes replaced, whatever. So the effect on the trucking industry has been this uh, Richard, and it's a bad one. Let's say you're a a trucking company and you think you need a hundred trucks to do the business you need to do, plus you have to have time for maintenance and training and all that. Well, what was 100 trucks maybe 10 years ago is now 110 trucks because you have to accommodate all of the downtime on the trucks, which is increasing rapidly because of the cheapification for the parts. now. Most of the parts, as I've said, the critical ones that will stop the truck from running are being made in China, and we are increasingly being held hostage to uh, fluctuations in the Chinese market. Or should the Chinese government just decide to quit shipping them, huge numbers of trucks will stop. And you you alluded to the idea of a truck sitting on the side of the road, which is a good picture. But you also have uh, another picture of this, 20 brand new trucks sitting in a heavy truck dealership, sitting there going nowhere because they've been cannibalized for parts to keep the existing trucks going in other words it's getting so hard to get parts for trucks now they're actually turning around to cannibalizing Uh, a friend of mine that works at a dealership uh, in the maritimes they just put a big fence around their compound uh, and put a bunch of lights and uh, barbed wire on it because people are actually stopping at night and stripping parts off trucks that's how hard it is to get parts so that's kind of the state of affairs right now so when you look at these independent truckers who are part of the convoy right now Uh, clearly the convoy is about ending the mandates. The vaccine mandates, especially the cross-border ones, were, shall we say, the, uh, you know, it's the, uh, what do they call it, the straw that broke the camel's back. There's a lot of problems in the industry. There's pressures all over the place. But Trudeau and his crowd all of a sudden decide that after two years of the pandemic, all of a sudden you need to be double vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera, to cross the border, to do this kind of thing, et cetera, et cetera. And this, I think, was just enough to set people off and say, you know, we need to start pushing back at some point, and here's an issue that everybody can understand and they can see, uh, and by the way, you know, they're going to start understanding it when they figure out that that uh, next bag of groceries they want from the grocery store, it's there because of the trucking industry. Well,
2: and this is only going to be compounded as uh, more and more of these carbon taxes come online, um, and then we've got, uh, you know, uh, zero emissions, are going to get rid of uh, internal combustion engines. Uh, most of the, uh, a lot of the component parts for these batteries will also be made in China. The lithium, uh, these mines are controlled by the Chinese. It's, I mean, they couldn't do a better job at hobbling this industry if they tried or, yeah. or is, is that the, is that the end game? Are they trying to, to well, destroy it?
9: This is one of these things. If we'd had this conversation five years ago, we'd have both been labeled as conspiracy theorists wrapped in foil and shipped off and appropriately. So, But now when you look at it, if you look at Trudeau's position, for instance, with the World Economic Forum, you look at our finance minister who's on the board of trustees for the World Economic Forum, you look at this continuing burden they place on the economy on every possible turn, whether it's cost, parts availability, supply chain, anything. Uh, And it's increasingly clear that the problems that the trucking industry have aren't trucks it's not engines it's not the you know the there's too much snow or something like that the trucks could work they could make the industry work what the problem is is you know analogy almost it's like the government wants to put a ten pound weight on the truck and say there's what you start with is an extra ten thousand pounds you have to drag around and does nothing that's increasing what the industry is at so i mean the governments of canada the usa and mexico have to start looking at how our supply chain works where the parts come from how the parts are obtained and how many parts it takes to keep this stuff going and we we are now being held hostage by china and any confrontation with them which is entirely possible given the mess in taiwan and everything else means we could lose large swaths of the trucks in north america now one more quick example if you want to see the problem everybody's complaining right now about the supply chain containers piling up in the ports why aren't the trucking industry clearing them out of there one reason is the port of vancouver just changed the rules and so have most of the ports in uh, california If you have a truck that's more than three years old, you're not allowed to bring it onto port property because, oh my God, it's not up to the latest green standard something, something. So only the newest uh, trucks can go there. So you've got trucks sitting there waiting that can move containers, but they're not allowed to go in. That's happening in Vancouver. It's happening in Long Beach. It's happening in Los Angeles. So what's actually sprung up is a whole new industry where the new trucks go into the port, take the container, bring it out of the port, take it to the border with Arizona, and then put it on another truck and ship it the rest of the way across America or into Canada or wherever. So what they're actually doing is putting an extra step in the supply chain in order to accommodate guys like Governor Newsom of uh, California and the Premier of D C. So this, I mean- you know, the answer, I see, uh, what's his name, our beloved Transmi- Transport Minister, Omar al you know, oh, no, double vaccines will fix all the problems. Yeah, Everything's going to yeah, be wonderful. Exactly. The actual answer is get government the hell out of the way. Let the trucking industry fix the trucking industry. And if the government's going to do anything, then they should be looking at repatriating the manufacturing systems that keep these trucks going. Amen and, to that.
2: T- yes. Tom, I got I to run. Uh, Cheers. Excell- excellent analysis, as always. Uh, check out... Uh, the Quiggin Report podcast, and uh, don't forget, The New Order of Fear, the Great Reset Trilogy, now available at Amazon. Tom, always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
9: And the mandates. Thanks, Richard.
2: All right, Tom Quiggin. When we come back, that Waterloo teacher that is being punished for speaking out against cancel culture and the age appropriateness of uh, certain trans transactivist books available in elementary school libraries, Chris Elston, a.k.a. Billboard Chris, will be here with more. Stay with us.
3: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Well,
2: our hero board is growing every day. More and more courageous Canadians are emerging. We've got our truckers, of course.
1: is running out. This message is paid for by Lines for Fair and Equitable Policy.
2: Descending on this cesspool, otherwise known as our nation's capital of Ottawa, some 60,000 of them, not including our US cousins who are coming up to join. And then we have this other courageous uh, person, a teacher with the Waterloo Region District School Board. She was remo- removed from a virtual school board meeting Last week, after making comments, the uh, cowardly chair called transphobic, Carolyn Burjowski was expressing concerns that some of the uh, the books in elementary school libraries were inappropriate for young children. One of the, the books was, or is, titled Rick by Alex Gina. In the second chapter, the uh, character named Rick questions their sexuality and eventually, or his sexuality rather, and eventually identifies as asexual. Carolyn Berjoski made the point in the uh, virtual school board meeting while reading the book, she said she was thinking, maybe Rick doesn't have sexual feelings yet because he's a child. Yeah, no kidding. Well, after being kicked out of the uh, the school board meeting, Caroline Berjoski says the experience has left her feeling bullied, slandered, and abused. And we are trying to get Caroline Berjoski on the uh, the program. Uh, Right now, we're going to get some insights from our good friend Chris Elston, aka Billboard Chris. Of course, he's been traveling Canada, exposing gender ideology and child abuse, and uh, the website BillboardChris.com. Hey, Chris, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing
7: fabulous, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. I'm actually going to be heading to Ottawa this weekend because uh, I go to wherever crowds are because my whole goal is to have conversations. So I'm going to the center of this
2: protest movement in Canada this weekend. Oh, fantastic.
7: But, uh, but I'm all up to speed
2: on this situation. So let's get into it here. Yeah, let's do that. Well, um, Carolyn Berjoski, have you spoken to her yet? I haven't, no. No. So I sort of described... First of all, have you uh, have you, are you familiar with this book Rick by Alex Gino?
7: It's it's by Alex Gino and yes, I'm very familiar with it. In fact, I wrote about this book on Twitter a year ago. And if people go to my Twitter at billboard chris, they'll see what I wrote cuz I actually just tweeted it out. But a year ago, this very book was read to a school in Coquitlam BC, which is one of the suburbs of Vancouver. They paid the author, Alex Gino, I think it was $650, to read this book to the whole school. And two weeks after that book was read, I got word that another girl in that school is now identifying as a boy. And of course, it's all because they're getting indoctrinated in school by books like this. So Alex Gino actually has two books. And let's get into what Carolyn Berjoski was saying. So this book called Rick, It's a couple boys, a couple 10-year-old boys having a conversation. And there's this one boy named named Jeff who uh, is talking about how he saw a naked woman on the beach and she was super hot. And, you know, Rick is just a little boy and he's not having these sexual feelings, but he feels like he needs to go along with Jeff, who is getting all hot and bothered by this naked woman. But, you know... Rick doesn't feel this way because he's just a little boy. And he ends up joining the Rainbow Club at school and declaring himself as asexual, meaning he doesn't have sexual feelings. Why Why the heck heck? are 9- and 10-year-olds being told that they need to be having these sexual feelings? And Carolyn Berjoski is absolutely right in everything she said. And as soon as she started just mentioning the most reasonable objections or concerns about how children are getting sexualized. She was shut down by the chair of the board called Scott Pietkowski, I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's a man because he has pronouns in his bio, which are he, him. So I think it's a man that we're dealing with here. But there's this book, Rick, that's sexualizing children and making kids to think there's something wrong with them if they don't have sexual feelings at the age of 10. And then Alex Gino's other book is called George. And in George, this is about a little boy who wants to be a girl. And one day, this little boy, George, borrows a pair of panties from his friend, a girl named Kelly. And he pulls on these panties, and they feel like nothing at all, and they have little hearts on them. And he goes into a stall, and he looks down at his panties. And right then and there is when this little boy realizes that he's really...
2: A girl. All right, Chris, I got to jump in yeah, here because we got to take a quick yeah. time out. We'll come back. Chris Elston uh, stays with us. Billboard Chris as we continue to discuss this Waterloo Region District School Board uh, teacher, a hero, Carolyn Burjowski, questioning the age appropriateness of some of this trans activist literature available in elementary school libraries. Uh, back with more of our discussion in three minutes. Don't go away.
3: Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m.,
2: back with Chris Elston, a.k.a. Billboard Chris, billboardchris.com. We're talking about this Waterloo Region School Board uh, teacher, Carolyn Burjowski, who has been uh, slandered and, and smeared and bullied because she had the temerity to question the age appropriateness of certain trans activist uh, literature that's available in elementary school libraries. And again, she is, uh, let's be clear here, she is not questioning in any way the rights of, of trans, uh, transsexual people. Uh, As has been alleged, she's simply questioning whether the sexual content in these books is appropriate for seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. So, Chris, you were telling us about this second book by Alex Gina called Jeff. And uh, in the book, uh, a a little boy is given a pair of underwear uh, from his, his friend who happens to be a girl.
7: That's right. A little boy, this little girl gives her his panties. He tries them on. And right then, he just realizes that he's actually a girl. So you've essentially got this middle-aged man, Alex Gino, writing about his own fetish, because Alex Gino, is, he identifies as a woman. So in all likelihood, he has this condition, which we call autogynephilia, which is where you get these middle-aged men who are essentially attracted to the idea, and they get sexually aroused by dressing up as women. And so we've got this guy writing children's books about his own fetishes, and now getting hundreds of copies of these books into our school libraries. There's over 100 copies of his book, Rick, in the Waterloo Region School Library. And then we've got this other book that Carolyn brought up in the meeting with the school board the other day, where it's essentially glorifying uh, giving kids puberty blockers and even sterilizing them. So we've talked a lot on your program before. I'm traveling North America to let people know about the harms of puberty-blocking drugs opposite sex hormones given to children how this is all experimental but in this other book that carolyn brujowski brought up we have this girl who wants to be a boy and so this doctor is talking to her and her dad and the doctor says some of the changes will be permanent others could be reversed surgically or they'll just go away but shane which is this girl will have skipped female puberty which means she most likely won't be able to have children naturally. Now, the girl in this book can see that her dad is concerned about this by the look on his face. Obviously, a dad would be concerned about his own daughter becoming sterilized. But in this book, the girl says, it's cool, mom and me have already talked about it. So they're making it out to be a normal thing to block puberty in children and to even sterilize these children and in these books, which are designed for kids from kindergarten to grade six,
2: it's being perceived as cool to become infertile. This other book and is so it's called Carolyn, "This." This is called The Other Boy. This is by M.G. Hennessy. So parents might want to inquire as to whether it's available in their elementary school library. The Other Boy by M.G. Hennessy. Go ahead, Chris. That's right. It, there's more than
7: 100 copies of that book in the Waterloo Region School Libraries as well. And so all Carolyn Bajowski did Was question the age appropriateness of this and question, you know, I forget her exact words, but it's not really appropriate to be downplaying the seriousness of puberty blockers and all of this stuff and the sterilization of children. But these are the materials that activists have succeeded in getting into our school library, but she couldn't even really make her point because she was immediately shut down by the chair of the board and accused of violating the Ontario Human Rights Code. And she's now been suspended as a teacher. She can't even teach.
2: It's Unbelievable. We have to take our school boards back, people. We have to take them back. This is where the the in, indoctrination begins. Our school boards have been taken over by a woke mob, and we're all paying the price right now, our children especially. Uh, Chris, we'll take one final time. I'll come back and uh, discuss... Again, the uh, the case of this brave Waterloo Region District School Board teacher, Carolyn Verjawski, who stood up to this woke school uh, board and now is paying the price. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes.
3: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM.
2: Two minutes remain with Chris Elston, a.k.a. Billboard Chris billboardchris.com, billboardchris, all one word.com. We're talking about uh, these uh, trans activist books in the elementary schools, in the libraries, and one particular teacher who is questioning the age appropriateness of these books, and uh, she was kicked out of a virtual school board meeting in Waterloo Region, Carolyn Burjowski. Uh, the books in question, Alex Gina's Rick, and another one by M.G. Hennessy, called The Other Boy. And uh, how pervasive are these books? We've been talking about Waterloo Region. What about uh, other school boards across Ontario, across Canada? Are these books everywhere, Chris? It's very
7: safe to say that, yes, these books are everywhere or other books just like them. Because it's been an agenda to install all of these sort of books espousing queer theory into all of our schools. And um, if we look, I just want to get a couple things in here. So she was kicked out of that board meeting. She was then suspended. The YouTube copy of this board meeting, which should be available for public viewing, was taken down. And they continued to try to get it taken down when other people posted it. They had another board meeting last night. And so six of the delegates speaking at this board meeting last night were speaking about trans issues. And one of these men got up. And his name's David Alton. He was the first delegate. And he said that kids are queer from the moment they're born. Dear Lord. This is Dear what Lord. they are teaching to all of these kids. And again, they as soon as the board meeting was done, they took it down from YouTube so that nobody else can watch it. What are these guys trying to hide? If they are on the right side of history why can't we just have a conversation the only tactic they ever have is to silence all speech like they did with carolyn burjowski and to remove all evidence because they know that as soon as you shine a spotlight on any of this this entire ideology falls to pieces so their only tactic is to silence people say they're bigots say they're transphobic say they're violating the human rights code and get them fired so we need to keep pumping the truth out there because parents have no idea how quickly the curriculum has changed and how many kids are getting indoctrinated. And they're not just getting indoctrinated, they're getting indoctrinated and then physically harmed, sterilized thousands of kids getting their puberty blocked, going on the wrong sex hormones and suffering irreversible damage and becoming lifelong medical patients.
2: And now because because of of
7: often starts in schools.
2: Right. And now because of new federal legislation, if a parent questions this refuses to affirm that his little girl is now to be addressed as his son, uh, or attempts to maybe get counseling for this child so that they can become comfortable in their own body or maybe address underlying issues. Some of those could include autism or depression. Uh, that father or mother, if they dare to do this, they could end up in jail. This is now a criminal offense. They call it conversion therapy. But Chris, isn't the conversion therapy really what's going on in the schools trying to convince Little boys, that they're actually little girls and vice versa. Isn't that conversion therapy? Of course. This whole
7: ideology teaches that stereotypes define what you are. So if a girl is a tomboy or a boy is more effeminate, they're actively being taught that these girls have a boy brain or these boys have a female gender identity, whatever that means. So, and then they're celebrated oh. for it. And it's totally fine to convince a boy that he's a girl, but it's not okay to help, help that boy, boy then be comfortable as a boy or help a girl be comfortable as a girl. These the activists, activists would rather our children become lifelong medical patients. It seems conversion therapy to help them be comfortable in their skin, but it's not conversion therapy to indoctrinate them to believe that there's something they're
2: not. So you and I have talked a number of times and uh, about rapid onset of gender dysphoria and how it's just an explosion, particularly among uh, girls. Now, can Part of it, do you believe, be explained by access to the materials in the libraries, also having teachers perhaps even introducing this um, th- this literature into the schools. Does this, in part, do you believe, explain this rapid onset of gender dysphoria, an explosion of it?
7: hundred percent. And this isn't a belief. This is just a fact that anyone can learn by talking to any of these parents. I've talked to hundreds of parents across Canada. I've talked to more in the United States. It's social media and it's school teaching. And in Canada, I think we're worse than any country in the world for this. We've been completely taken over by activists and there's no discussion allowed. But when your biggest authority figure in your life or your second biggest authority figure in your life, like a teacher, is telling you something as though it's fact, and you're just a little child with a developing brain, well, of course you're going to believe your teacher. If they're teaching that there's such a thing as being born in the wrong body, well, of course these kids are going to believe it. They're little kids. And a lot of these kids, as you mentioned, have autism. ADHD is super common. There's been abuse, trauma. A lot of times there's been sexual abuse leading these girls to want to become boys because it's like an escape from being a girl. And we don't look into any of these comorbidities. We don't look into the depression. We don't look into the anxiety. We're not doing mental health assessments at all more than half the time. And that's not me saying that. This comes from senior officials at the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, Dr. Marcy Bowers, Dr. Erica Anderson, they are all themselves blowing the whistle on this, and two of them are trans women or biological males. So the, the thing going on in Canada today is all of these actors just try so hard to silence any discussion. I go to Ottawa to try to have conversations with some parents. I get a mob of 200 university students led by... Ottawa. Ottawa mayoral candidate, candidate for mayor, Catherine, Catherine McKenney. Catherine McKinney came out, encouraged this mobbing of me. I was punched in the head a couple times. I was painted on. I had my car keyed. I wasn't even able to get into my car. Police all watched as they did nothing. But this is what all of our politicians are pushing. Because they see me having reasonable, rational com- conversations with the average Joe on the street. And they know it's a threat because they know as soon as the truth comes out, that people and parents especially are simply not gonna stand for this. So Richard, you're doing amazing work, talking about this all the time. You're spreading word more than anyone else in any radio medium in Canada. So thank you for that. But to parents listening, this isn't a fringe issue anymore. We have tens of thousands of children all across Canada and in some high schools up to 10% of the kids say they're transgender now. And it's the most vulnerable kids who end up in these gender
2: clinics, getting physically harmed for life. So, how do we, we wake parents up? How do we w- How do we wake wake parents up? And what's the assignment here, Chris? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, next time there's a, an election for school board trustees, we're going to pl- pay closer attention, uh, and you know maybe we're going to vet them a little better. But that's you know that's not going to get it done entirely either. What do we? How do we? How do we fix this?
7: Well, I think. Parents all across Canada need to start making noise at these school board meetings, and they need to run for the school boards themselves, because all of these activists have been planning this for a very long time, and they're very well-funded, and this is their life, and they've gotten themselves installed in all these political positions, and the average guy, just going about his life, had no idea any of this was occurring. So in the long term, the only way we take this back is by taking these people out of their jobs. So I encourage individuals to run for their school boards. But you have to make noise with your teachers. You have to make noise with your school's principal. You need to find out what your kids are learning. And just raise some help. Because until we do, they're going to keep pushing this. Right. And one thing to... parents, what, you know, One thing teachers don't like is getting complaints. So go talk to your teacher and let them know that you're not okay with this over-sexualization of your children.
2: And start showing up at school board meetings. Start, yeah. start showing up at school board meetings and demand to know what's happening. Uh, Chris, thank you so much as always for your uh, insights. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Richard. Talk to you later. Chris Elston, billboard, Chris, BillboardChris.com. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing. You never know. The Brian Crombie hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, But push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.